Amen. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to be in Isaiah 44 this morning, uh, continuing this section of our, of our series on Isaiah, where we're focusing on what Isaiah has to say about Israel and their condition, and by, by extension, what he has to say about us and our condition. Because things are true about Israel that are true about us, I mean, true about every human that's ever walked the earth. What Isaiah is trying to do is paint a picture of how specifically Israel had sinned against him. What specifically about Israel's behavior, about their confidence and hope, about their misplaced trust, makes judgment necessary and makes the promises that this book is going to teach us about even more sweet. We're trying to get a good picture, a good concrete picture. And, and what we said last week in the first, the first sermon in this section of our series that's about us and, and our sin problem is that if you, if you wanted to put a blanket category on what Isaiah says about sin, about where it comes from, the problem he identifies is misplaced trust. Israel's problem is a problem of trust. That they hadn't trusted in God, that they had trusted in all the wrong things. And that God's commitment in, in the judgment that, that dominates so much of this book is to expose these false hopes that Israel had to try to show them to be the empty claims that they are so that Israel have, will have clearer eyes to see that God is the only thing worth trusting. So what we're trying to do in our series is pick some representatives out of this 66-chapter book of passages that are really clear in marking out and describing things that Israel was trusting that they shouldn't have trusted. What we talked about last week was Israel's tendency to trust the powerful nations that were around them. That when they were confronted with, with annihilation by more powerful nations, they made an alliance they shouldn't have instead of trusting in God and his ability to deliver. Much of the first half of the book is given to that subject, to God exposing how, how foolish it is to trust in the things that look powerful in this world. One of the other things that comes up regularly in Isaiah, and the thing we're going to focus on for the next two weeks, is Israel's tendency to trust idols talked about their tendency to trust the powerful neighbors around them. But one of the things he's most interested in is their trust in idols. And we want to spend two weeks on this, using two separate passages that try to expose idols for what they really are. And I recognize we've got a problem when it comes to trying to understand Isaiah's take on idolatry and trying to see ourselves in the thing he's condemning. Because our take on idolatry, on what was going on then, is very different from from what the, the folks that he originally wrote the book to would have thought. Uh, this really hit me this week, actually. I was thinking about this passage, thinking about where to go with the sermon. I was standing in line for some takeout at Qdoba, and I was noticing the, you know, the beautiful artwork that they have on the walls. That's a joke. It's really cheap, but it, it's kind of typical uh, Mesoamerican images, right? Um, they're, they're basically idols. So there's pictures of sort of stone craft. They're not really stone, but as if they had been chiseled out of these different human figures in interesting positions, um, uh, clearly almost totem pole-like images that would have been you know, religious, sacred images originally. And now they're just sort of culture-setting wall art at a fast food joint. And it hit me that, you know, 2,000 years ago, if I was a Christian, I probably would not have eaten in a place that had this stuff hanging on the wall. 
I mean, a lot of the stuff that Paul's writing to in the New Testament, his letters, has to do with people who think that if they just buy meat from a place that was associated with the pagan temple, that that meat was going to make them sick. That they were going to, that they were somehow be defiled by their by just touching it. They wouldn't have eaten. They wouldn't have thought of eating a burrito from Qdoba with that stuff on the wall. But it just doesn't even factor into my imagination, other than to think that this is, you know, they could do better. I, I don't. I, I certainly don't don't think about not eating there because of it. And. And it hit me that, that that is really a pervasive problem for all of us, I think, when we encounter texts like the one we're going to encounter today because we think the thing that's condemned today is foolish. And therefore, we isolate ourselves from it. And we think it's not talking about us, right? What we're going to do, what, what we're going to do for the next two weeks is try to cut through this cultural difference that separates us from the material, physical, chiseled-out idols that Israel would have worshipped, that makes us feel superior to them, and see what lies underneath what they were doing. To see that idolatry is actually more a condition of the heart than it is a particular physical object. That's what we're after today in Isaiah chapter 44. If you found the passage, I want to begin by reading it. I'm going to read verses 9 to 23 of Isaiah 44. If you found that, would you please stand with me now in honor of God's word as we read. This is the word of the Lord. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that's profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers Nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob. And Israel, for you are my servant. 
I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. This is God's word. You can be seated. What you may have noticed in this passage is that the folks who worship idols end up becoming like them. It's one part of the judgment that you worship something without ears to, see, ears to hear and eyes to see and you lose yourself the ability to perceive or to understand. What I think is true is that in, in shelving the sort of physical idols that our forebears thousands of years ago would have worshipped, we have made it easier for us to be deceived to not seeing the way that we still continue to worship things that we shouldn't. And our goal today is going to be to clarify what idolatry looks like anywhere, anytime, any place, and to see how we're guilty of the thing that this text condemns. What I want to start with, though, is the nature of idolatry. What we're going to do is there's four steps. If you've got a worship guide, it should be laid out for you uh, on one of the pages of the worship guide. We're going to talk about what idolatry is, We're going to talk about why idolatry is useless according to this passage. That's the gist of the passage. We're going to talk about how we're guilty of idolatry. And then we're going to talk about how we're saved from it. And that's the end of the passage, the last couple of verses. So we're going to start with what idolatry is. We need to get clear on this before we get too far into the details of the text. Um, We need to understand the category, the subject that the text is talking about. Um, To to, to guard against any kind of misconceptions and make sure that you know what I'm meaning when I use the word we need to focus on what idolatry is. And, and where I want to start, one of my favorite definitions that I've come across is Martin Luther's, hundreds of years old, but it's still really, really clear and to the point in the way that Luther had a knack for it. Here's what Luther said. It's this simple. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. I'll say that again. It might even be worth writing down. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, That is your God. So, to make this about idolatry, you would say, whatever your heart clings to, and whatever your heart relies upon, that isn't the God who made you, is an idol. It's a false God. I I wanted to highlight Luther's definition, not just because it's helpful, but because it's actually the, the exact definition that our text would point us to. Before we get too far into the details of it, I just want to highlight two words. This is, this is me putting our text spin on Luther's definition. Idolatry is about two words that come up in this passage that we're going to get into further. Idolatry is about delight and about deliverance. Idolatry is about what you delight in and what you seek deliverance through. Or from what you seek deliverance. It's not that you want to be delivered from it, but by it, by its power. It's what you delight in what you seek deliverance through. The word delight comes up in verse 9, just to point you quickly to it. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's basically a synonym for those who fashion idols. It's all those who fashion idols are, are nothing. Next, next statement pretty much just restates it. The things they delight in do not profit. So idols here are defined as the things that they delight in, what their heart wants, runs to, has affection for. Idols are the things that you cherish, the things that you love, the things that you value at the center or at the goal of your life. 
It's what gives you joy. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's what makes life meaningful, what makes life worth living for. When you think about what you have to do or accomplish to make your life worth living, there you find your God. So this delight aspect is really closely connected to the second one, deliverance. Because deliverance is kind of just like the flip side. Deliverance is what we think if we didn't have would make our, our life no longer worth living. What if we lost it would leave us incomplete, would leave us with a hole. And so to prevent being incomplete, having a hole in the center of our life, we look to this thing to deliver us, fill us up, complete us, satisfy us. Or else we're lost. This word comes up in verse 17 of our, of our passage. After the, after the long sort of short story about this guy who fashions an idol, what does he do? He bows down to it and what he cries out to it is, deliver me. The summary, verse 20, brings us back to the same two categories. It says, he feeds on ashes. Basically, it's profitless or useless. And then he says, a deluded heart has led him astray. I think what, what that means is desires that were off base, that were, that were put onto things they shouldn't have been. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself. These are the two categories. You want to know what your idols are, what you need to identify is what is it your heart is clinging to, delighting in, living for. And what is it that your heart relies on for deliverance? What is it that, confronted with things that you wish weren't true about yourself, makes up for those things? Confronted with things that you aren't, that you wish you were. What is it that you look to to, to to account for that, to compensate for that? And there you, have your, there you have your idol. Idolatry, in other words, is a heart condition. And by heart, don't think Valentine's. Don't think emotion. Don't think these sort of sentimental definitions of love. Think about that, the, the way the Bible would use it, as a sort of center of who you are, what, what, what you're for, what you're about, your affections, the thing that drives you, that, that, that guides your will, your action. It's a heart condition. It's a, it's a matter of desire and purpose, what you're drawn to and rest on. And that's why, even though the Bible in passages like ours often does talk about idolatry in terms of these physical objects that people were worshiping, that's why the Bible also sometimes talks about idolatry in other ways. So, for example, in the, in the prophet Habakkuk, he refers to those whose strength is their God. Their power is what they love, delight in, and rest on. Or the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Colossians talks about greed as a kind of idolatry. Because that's what we, because for those who are greedy, delight in their money. And they look to their money to deliver them, to make them safe and secure. It's why, to use last week's text, Israel was basically worshiping an idol when they looked to their powerful neighbors for their security and their deliverance rather than trusting the promises of God. Idolatry can be physical, but it's always a heart condition, and it's one that we share too. Just to tie this up, I think that, that this essence of idolatry is why the Bible uses certain metaphors for idolatry. It's why the Bible, for example, uses adultery as one of its main metaphors for what Israel had done to God because they had placed their love and affection, their delight on other objects in doing that, they turned from their true spouse, the one who was to be their object of delight, the, the, the source and center for their affections. They committed a kind of spiritual adultery. It's why the Bible uses the metaphor of treason 
for sin. Because in place of the one they should have looked to as their authority and protector for deliverance, they have, they've run after other powers, after other sovereigns. They've pledged allegiance to other kingdoms and committed a kind of spiritual treason. It's because that's what idolatry is at root. It's about the light. And it's about deliverance. Now, from there, I want to get into the meat of the passage. And that, that comes in verses 9 to 20. And it gets at why idolatry is useless. That's the main concern of our passage today. We want to understand why idols are useless in the terms that are set by this text, Isaiah 44. The story reads, or the passage rather, reads kind of like a cross between a courtroom scene where you've got, you've got a, a, a lawyer presenting evidence for something and, the, and, and also sort of a satirical short story where he's, he's, he's telling, setting a scene for us and mocking it. After, after the opening statement we already drew from in verses 9 through 11 on, on delight and on what doesn't profit, on the uselessness of delighting in idols, we get an extended example in verses 12 to 17. It's like we're taken into a workshop of sorts and, and we get to see idol creation as it happens. Actually, if you, if you look carefully at it, it's like we're seeing it in reverse. It starts at the end of the process and sort of works its way back to the source because the source of the idol's being, its creation, matters a lot in a way we're going to talk about. Let's just track with him. What you see first inside this workshop is a guy who's almost done with a finished product. He's overlaying it with something precious. It doesn't say exactly what, but, but it's, the, it's an ironsmith with a cutting tool that he's working over the coals and he's, he's fashioning and hammering something on top of this physical object that he's created. He... he He's working hard with his strong arm to bring it into the form that he wants it to take. Next step, we see the the carpenter stretching a line and marking it out. This is the guy coming up with the plans for how he's going to overlay this thing that he's built. From there, he takes us into the the design itself that he's decided, I think what I'm going to make this is a man because what could be better than that, right? That's what we're meant to see here. He makes it into the, the form of the beauty of man to live in a house because that's the highest category he's got, right? The highest thing in his frame of reference is I'm going to make me. We're taking the, in verse 14 to the next step, the, the, the immediately prior step where he's cutting down a tree and from there to he's actually the one who planted the tree and, and watered it and the tree for it to grow had to, had to be rain, had to have rain, had to be nourished by the powers of creation. What we're meant to see, I think, is that this thing is far from being outside of creation. It's depend- fully, thoroughly dependent on it if it's going to survive. Then in verses 15 to 17, we get to the most satirical section. It becomes fuel for a man. He takes this tree that he's cut down. He cuts the log in half. Half of it he burns He uses it to eat, to prepare his food and warm himself. And the other half of it he makes into a god. He says, aha, now I'm warm. And then he says to the same piece of wood, deliver me. You are my god. In a sense, the story stands on its own, doesn't it? I mean, you don't need me to help you see the point here. It's pretty clear. What I want to say, though, is that there's really two things this story highlights for us 
about what makes idols useless. Idols are powerless, and they can't save you, and they're arbitrary. They're powerless, and they're arbitrary. The text makes the powerless point probably the most clearly. Like I've, already, I've already pointed to a couple of these details, but it's like the main thing he wants you to see is just how derivative, just how, um, just how created this idol is. Far from being outside of it, think of the passages about God we've already looked at in Isaiah. Far from being the one who holds the water in the hollow of his hand or who, who uh, hung the stars where they are and names them all, this idol depends on rain to grow into a tree, depends on a man to decide what to carve it into, depends on someone to, to mark it off with a pencil and then to, to chisel it away and then to overlay it with something precious. And even then, from beginning to end, it is the product of, of human power and human ingenuity. So that puts a ceiling on how powerful it could be in the best of circumstances. It can't be more powerful than the thing that created it, Right? And even the man that's creating it, we're pointed to, had to stop and take a break for lunch because even his strength wore out. He got thirsty and had to take something to drink. The idol is the product of something that's limited and, and in its own way powerless. And it's useless to turn to something for deliverance from a force that your power can't control when that something is a product of your power and limited by your power. That's the point. That's the, the, the overarching point. But there's something else that's closely related to this. Because this idol has no power in and of itself, because it's just a piece of wood, the choice of this thing as a god is completely arbitrary. Like, why choose one piece to, to build a fire over and, and to eat food from and one to worship? There's nothing to distinguish the two. It's a completely arbitrary choice. It's arbitrary because there's nothing about this piece of wood inherent to it that makes it able to do anything for you. It's arbitrary in the same sense that a hammer isn't great for cutting paper, but you wouldn't use scissors to drive in a nail. When you look for something for deliverance, it has to match the thing that you need it to do. And there's no connection whatsoever between what humans need in this story and the abilities or properties of this piece of wood. It could just have soon have warmed him up a little bit before he went to bed. The folly of idolatry. Is that related to what's really valuable? What really matters? What's really needed? Your choice of an idol is an arbitrary choice and it's limited by your wisdom and your power and your creativity. And the great tragedy that verses 18 to 20 draw out is that one of the, one of the things that happens to us when we worship these idols that we have created is that we take on their properties that we become like what we worship. And just as they have no ability to see or perceive or hear or understand, so those who give themselves to these gods are blinded to their condition. They don't see it. Verse 20 summarizes it as a feeding on ashes. You're eating and looking to nourishment from something that has no substance, from something that, ha- that cannot last, that's empty and useless. Now, chances are, you know, if you just come across this story in a vacuum and you're reading it, you get to the end of it and you're thinking, you know, so far so good. That's exactly the foolishness that I would say is true of all people who fall down and worship these physical idols that they've made with their hands. You know, again, like, this kind of idolatry, these kind of physical idols, 
in our experience, are more like wall art at Qdoba or something you could buy for your tabletop at Kirkland's. You know, these things are not, are not in our experience, invested with any kind of power, with any kind of sacredness. And so we're likely reading this passage to put ourselves on a pedestal and say, we have figured it out. You know, modern man no longer worshiping at the foolish works of his hands. But the problem is that if we isolate ourselves from what this text is condemning, we stay blind. We continue to fail to see and to understand that idolatry is something that's much deeper than whatever surface level form it takes. It's something that's in us. We've got to see how we're guilty of idolatry. And I think the best way to do that is to take one example, one concrete example of something that most of us in one way or another delight in and rely on that isn't God. I want to take, I want to take one example and try to, try to set it up for you, try to describe it in a way that should sound familiar to you, and then try to expose how foolish it is to trust in it, how it's really no different than trusting in a block of wood that you might cut and carve up to your specifications. I want to take the object that's often underneath and involved in lots of other kinds of idols that we have. One that I think is a source for lots of sorts of idolatry. Something that the Greeks called glory or fame. Something that was worth dying for because it would live on beyond them. Think Homer, his Iliad, his Odyssey. Something that, that men in the Old South would have called honor that source of capital in an agrarian society that's face-to-face where everybody knew you, where your reputation mattered so much, something that was worth dueling over. Think the Old South, honor. Something we might call by other names, something we might call reputation or status or praise. I'm going to call it recognition just for the sake of our discussion today. Our desire to be known and acknowledged by others on terms that we value I don't know what your terms are. I don't know how you want to be understood by others, but all of us are driven by a desire to be recognized for possessing something that we think matters or makes us significant, something that protects us from being normal. We all know what it feels like, right, to be well thought of by other people. We crave it in one way or another. That's true for those of you who are people pleasers like me who just want to make everybody happy or those of you who maybe don't struggle with that, but you, you still want to be famous for something, right? You still want to have something that you're good at and that people know you're good at. One of the geniuses of Facebook is the like feature, right? Isn't that one of the reasons that it's so popular? That, 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 I think that social networking in general, it thrives on this part of our natural idolatry, that it gives you a venue for being acknowledged by other people. It's why companies will give you free stuff for liking their page, right? It's why, it's why you feel the way you feel when a, when a photo you posted on Facebook starts racking up the likes. Doesn't that have a feeling to it? I mean, just be honest. Twitter's got the same thing going on. Why do we need to know how many followers somebody has? If not as a symbol of how well-recognized they are, of how beloved, of how wise they seem, of how clever, funny... Whatever it is that you use your Twitter account for, your followers are kind of a symbol of how good you are at it. And, and posting that draws on what all marketers know about human nature, that we crave this kind of acknowledgement, this kind of recognition. It's widely known now, that it's probably always been true, that in the workplace, recognition can be even more powerful as a motivator than money. 
I mean, that's why the, the myth of the starving artist is actually true. Right? You'd be willing to live a life that isn't going to be lucrative financially because you want to be discovered. It's why people go into fields like academia, right? You're not going to make anything. But there's a certain kind of prestige and, and, and acknowledgement and recognition that can come for it, and we're driven by that. Adding a line to your CV has a feeling to it, doesn't it? It has a feeling to it, and not just because of the thing that you did and, the, uh, and the, the value of that accomplishment, but because it gets a little bit longer. Think of the career politician. Some of them are making money, the crooked ones especially, but there's a lot of them that, if you're, if you're just a run-of-the-mill congressman, you're not making much, and you're living in D.C. where it's really, really expensive, but there's a recognition that comes from that. Right? Think of, think of the, the novelist who's not appreciated in his own time fully, who, who lives creating works of art that are going to stand the test of time, but who doesn't sell any books while he's alive. And these, there's several of these famous from history. We don't work just for money. We work because we love. We work not even just because we value the accomplishments, but we all are drawn to being recognized for our, for our work. I even see this in, uh, I, I think that even, even the desire for money is fueled sometimes by this desire to be recognized. A lot of times getting more money is not going to change your quality of life any, especially once you get to a certain level. But getting more money is a symbol of how well you're thought of or how highly your skills are valued. It's a, it's a status symbol. Certain things you can buy with your money often are not going to improve the quality. I and mean, one set of clothes is not necessarily more comfortable than another set or, or car or house or whatever. But there's a status that comes from it. There's a recognition. There's a, a projection of an image that you hope to be received in a certain way that money allows you to buy. So even money itself is driven by this other idol that so many of us have in us, that all of us have at some level. I've noticed even my, even my parenting is affected by this idol. Because I want to be known and viewed as a good parent. I want to have my kids recognized as good kids. And I'm never more insecure as a parent than when I'm unsure of somebody who's watching me of whether they think I'm doing a good job. If I'm not sure I've got their approval or recognition, of, uh, then, then, then it throws me off. I'm insecure about it. We delight in the recognition we receive from others and we do what we have to do to get it. Right? We work ourselves to death for it. Sometimes workaholism is driven by this primal desire we run each, other's da- each other down by comparison to improve our standing or our, our, our view in other people's mind. We will lie to protect the status or the recognition that we've earned. We delight in it. That's the point I'm trying to make. It, it has a feeling to it that it, it evokes something in us that we cherish and long for. We also look to it for deliverance, though, don't we? We look to the recognition of others to assure ourselves that what we've done with our lives has not been for nothing. What we fear is mediocrity. We fear irrelevance. We fear being isolated, being disapproved of. We fear being normal, not really having anything specific to us that people recognize. That's what we fear. We're insecure. And so what we look to for security is recognition by other people of our quality We look to success. We look to 
the recognition of our success. We especially look to it from those people that matter the most to us. And the problem is that we're typically so busy pursuing this goal that we're blind to the folly of building life on something that's so illusory and so temporary. We are guilty, or what, 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 what verses 18 to 20 describe is true of us, that we are blinded to our condition. We don't even see that we're living for this. Often what it takes is a brush with our own mortality to wake us up and to show us how foolish it is to rest our heart's affections and security here. Because ultimately, your title, your PhD, your 10-page CV or whatever else won't save you when you're diagnosed with cancer, right? It's famous that when you, when you receive a, some sort of terminal diagnosis that all of a sudden your senses are alive in a new way and you see things differently with a diff, through, through a different lens. What we all have got to learn to strive for is to see ourselves as carrying around a death sentence that's no less certain than a diagnosis with cancer and to see what it is we're living for in light of the fact that death is coming for us. Ultimately, we need to recognize that there is no recognition from other people, no status we might have in their eyes that has the power to deliver us from death. Confronted with death, this thing we labor for and long to achieve loses its taste. It loses its, its luster. It turns to ashes, just like verse 20 says. And it's exposed for having no power to deliver whatsoever. My maternal grandfather was one of my favorite people. Um, he is, is the, the, the man for whom our firstborn son was named, Walter. He is uh, one of the most accomplished men that I've ever known. He had a long and um, successful career in business. Um, he was spent most of that career in the, in the textiles industry, which is sort of bread and butter for Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina in, in the time when he was in his prime. After that, he spent time in government. He was in the, uh, the administration of one of Alabama's governors for quite some time as a legislative liaison. He was a successful man. He was recognized for his success I never met anyone who didn't love him and respect him. He, uh, he had achieved what we all live for. And he also had emphysema. He had power, he had recognition, he had status, and he had a terminal disease. I remember when his health got to be too much a problem for his full-time responsibilities. I remember watching it scale down for him. He, he stepped down from the job in government. He took a spot as... Um, as the, the head of the Chamber of Commerce in his local town, which was still really important. He still did some really great stuff, bringing big businesses into this small town, but it was not the governor's office. I remember when even that job became too much for him, and he took a series of part-time jobs because he was a hard worker, and he was a provider, and he wanted to work. I remember when he had jobs at a couple of shoe stores. I remember when he had a, a temporary job at a, at a uh, call center. And then a few years after, he, he and my grandmother moved to the town where I grew up. A smaller place, a place where they didn't know anybody, a place where nobody knew him. And I remember that he was unable to get an unpaid volunteer spot at the local chamber. I remember him telling me that he had gone to, to try to, you know, to be of some, some help in this economically depressed town where I grew up and that they didn't have any use for him. A few years later, when his disease got 
worse, um, he was, when he was near death, they moved his hospital bed into his office. And I remember that in, in his office where he spent his last few days, there was this wall covered from floor to ceiling with plaques that he had received, with awards, with recognition of the things that he had done. There was some serious stuff up there. Um, a testimony to the way that he had given his life, to the success with which he had done it. I was proud of it. Our whole family was. And I know in some sense he was too. But he died there. He died in that room, underneath a wall full of testimony to his achievements. And that wall and what it represented could not save him from death. I remember hearing a year or so after he died that they didn't know what to do with all the plaques. There were just boxes and boxes of these things. And I remember hearing them say that they... They were thinking about giving the plaques to this neighbor who works with wood. He had a wood shop. And they, were, they figured at least he could put this wood to good use. And I remember the initial sort of almost shock or gut punch that that was to me. I mean, this is my granddad's life, his accomplishments. And now, and now it's going to be turned into sort of practice for this amateur woodworker. And what's hit me since then what my grandfather who lived with the hope of Jesus' resurrection would want me to see in this is that these plaques, this recognition that he received was more suited for practice in an amateur tinkerer's workshop than it was for delivering him from the problem that he and every one of us ultimately has to face. The recognition, if he had been living for it, could not save him. It was arbitrarily related to what he really needed. It was like a toss-up between something you might worship and something that you might shape into a toy for a kid or to borrow the image of our text, something that you might toss onto a fire to get warm, to cook some food. Thanks be to God, that is not the end of his story. And that doesn't have to be the end of your story either. I mentioned that he believed in the resurrection of Jesus. He lived for that. And our text, for all of its satirical bite, is not a hopeless one. It is not a mockery, ultimately, of the person who worships idols, but of a life given over to idolatry. It is a call to those who might be tempted to worship idols to come out of that And where I want to end today is to pointing you to these verses as the means by which we are saved from the idolatry that all of us are prone to. The first thing that these verses, beginning in verse 21, calls Israel to, hearing this this story, having had this picture painted of a life given over to arbitrary and powerless sources of deliverance, Israel is called to remember. I think that is a call to wake up to see that this is what you might be living for if you're tempted by the gods of your neighbors and it is empty and it will get you nowhere. Remember this. I think it's basically what the Bible calls repentance. A call to wake up, to see what it is you're living for, to see that if it isn't the God who made you, then it isn't worth your time. To see that if you are blind and deaf to your spiritual condition, You have got to cry out to God to deliver you, to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. It's a call to remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. Remember them and return to the Lord. That's repentance. 
That's how you're saved from idolatry. You've got to let it go. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week. Then, letting go of this false hope, what you've got to do is set your affections on the one true God of the universe. You've got to live for him. It's not enough to let go of the thing that's going to let you down, to stop eating ashes. You've got to place your heart and its affections and your security, your hope for deliverance, on the only God who can carry that kind of weight. And that's what these verses point us to. I have formed you, God says to Israel. You did not form me. I formed you. I chiseled you out according to my exact specifications. Me, the one who stretched out the heavens, who numbers all the stars and calls them out by name. I am the one who formed you. I am worth your life. Ultimately, we are all made for a purpose, right? It's not random. God made us to glorify him by showing that he is up to the task of giving us purpose, joy, and hope. He is asking us to trust that. And that's what we're here for. He's worth the, the, the setting of our affections on him because he is not a God who can be surprised or limited by anything in this world. So there is nothing that he is not big enough to do. I remember back to a couple weeks ago we talked about his love and the way that Isaiah 40 portrays it and the fact that, it, that where everything else withers and fades, where everything turns to ashes, the word of the Lord stands forever and his word is a word of promise. It is a word that if you trust in him, if you put your heart's affections and your heart's hopes, if you delight in and seek deliverance from his hand, he will not fail you. He's up to the job. Ultimately, his ability to do this for us, his ability to receive us as we return to him, to turn from the things that we have been living for is the is the reality that he is able to blot out our transgressions like a cloud and our sins like a mist. He can redeem us even though we haven't been what we should be. That is a pointer to the one who would hang from a cross bearing the sins that we have incurred. This is a pointer to Jesus. This is a passage meant to help us get ready for him and trust in him more fully. He is able to save because he has handled the problem of our sin once and for all. And with that problem handled, if we will turn from the ashes we have been living for, the promise we have is that the recognition we long for and seek from all the wrong places will be ours in him. Remember what verse, what verse 21 says. You will not be forgotten by me. Isn't that what we want so badly? To not be forgotten. To not just be normal and unimportant. To not just drift away in the current that is all of human history. We want to be known and remembered. The Greeks sought it in a, in, in a battlefield glory that would outlive them and they sought it poorly. But we are promised it if we attach ourselves to the one who knows all things. What we have to do, and this is really where we're going to drill down next week. What this kind of repentance and faith calls for from us the willingness we've got, to, we've got to come to grips with is that if we're going to be saved by this God, we've got to stop needing to claim credit for what it is that gives us delight and deliverance. Ultimately, one of the things that makes idolatry so attractive is that it's so in our power. 
we control the terms. Where it works, it's a testimony to us. Where it's beautiful, it's a testimony to our creativity and our ability. And verse 23 reminds us that the only song that's going to stretch to the end of time is a song of praise to the one and only deliverer of all those who trust in him. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it, not anybody else. Sing, O depths of the earth, O mountains, O forests and every tree. Sing of this, that the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. So don't miss this, friends. If you're going to turn from the ashes that you have been pursuing and find true meaning, true joy, true deliverance, you're going to have to approach God on his terms. And his terms are this, that you hang up all of your attempts to save yourself, that you rest in the fact that he alone is sufficient and that you give him, by this rest, the glory that only he deserves. There is no deliverance. There is no true, satisfying, securing worship that isn't centered on God and His glory. What you need is the Holy One of Israel. Father, give us Yourself, we pray. We want eyes that see You for who You are and that see these false hopes for what they are and that are not drawn in by the things that normally seem so beautiful to us. We want a new set of senses. And so we ask for the power of Your Spirit to be with us, to change us, to expose the false worship that we're guilty of. If we don't see it, we ask that whatever is necessary, even if pain is necessary, that you would rip that false source of security out from under us, that you would let us fall, but not all the way. Let us fall until we despair of all hope except for Jesus and help us to fall on him with joy. We pray this in His name. Amen.